Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit TenkataFabrics.com slash Flex 7. Flex 7, powered by enforced technology. Only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Well, welcome to another edition of Fire and Training. I'm your host, Douglas Klein. And joining me tonight is, again, my esteemed colleague and friend, Christopher Nam. We're in a six-part series talking about uh, commercial buildings and various areas that we want to focus on in this six-part series. So tonight in part three, we're going to focus in on commercial fire ground operations decision making that is wrapped around risk and risk management. And of course, Chris, it's always good to have you on the show. It's it's this is a phenomenal series. So uh, it's good to have you back. It's good to be in here. And of course, everything that we focus on is is focused to the men and women who are in the streets, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Uh, responding to calls, taking care of business, and our, our goal is to provide them the best information we can, the best knowledge that we can, and to keep them safe so everyone goes home. So uh, you ready to kick off another great program in part three? And we certainly are, Doug. Uh, and again, for our listeners, uh, again, this is uh, part three of our continuing six-part series on the commercial fireground. Um, our previous two episodes, which rolled out in the latter part of uh, 2023. Uh, again, we kicked off our series talking about uh, today's challenges dealing with uh, the commercial buildings and the commercial fire ground. Uh, that was part one. And then part two uh, got into some of our discussions very preliminarily, just talking about building construction and modern methods of construction and materials. We laid the groundwork out for the unique aspects, especially when we talk about hybrid structures and hybrids within the commercial occupancy setting, and again, how important it is to get into the streets, identify those buildings that are either under construction or those buildings that are undergoing renovation. Those are two very distinctive separate areas that have a tremendous degree of building intel that will aid in determining tactical and operational command level decision-making and engagement. So those were our first two episodes, and again, for our listeners, uh, again, both of those episodes are available in the Fire Engineering uh, archives. If you go to fireengineering.com to the podcast segments, uh, that will lead you into the appropriate links for the archives, and you'll be able to identify both of those programs, both on Doug's program as well as on the Buildings on Fire program. So, again, we continue to develop these series. We've often felt, especially with our previous successes over the last couple of years, with uh, these more in-depth discussions and dialogues, which allows you, the listener, to gain a much greater degree of insights in these short topical areas under one primary theme. And again, uh, the issue, Doug, as we're well aware of, when we talk about the commercial fire ground, there are, there are distinctive levels of risk that are unlike other structures due to a number of things that we're going to talk about here. But again, coming out of the Horry County, uh, Myrtle Beach, Grand Strand area of South Carolina. We talk about commercial construction, right? You, you know, you see it all from, from the small little uh, um, t-shirt shops all the way up to the, to the large big boxes and themed types of uh, commercial buildings that are in your uh, response area throughout that county. Uh, we certainly do, Chris. And of course, you know, in our travels, we're seeing the same thing in a lot of other places. Um, it kind of goes back to uh, the program we did last year in pre-con at FDIC with the resorts and thinking about commercial buildings and all the things associated to that, but also going and, and traveling a little bit. <clears throat> I'll share some information a little later on in, in, in my show, and then, of course, I'll, I'll dovetail that into some of the stuff we'll talk about on your show. And, you know, the, the biggest thing is we're seeing a tremendous amount of growth uh, throughout the United States, and, and the building materials are, are changing. 
uh, the renovations to buildings are changing. And, you know, one of the things that sparked up in, in one of the recent conversations I had is the amount of experience people have going to these types of fires and going to these type of buildings in, in operational uh, capacities and especially having operational experience, much less operational command level experience and decision making that goes with that. And that's where we dovetail into what we're talking about tonight with risk management and being able to really manage the risks that are associated to these types of structures. And, you know, you know, just quite frankly, in, in the last, I guess, six, seven months of being in different classrooms and, and talking about people's experiences, and, and especially when you're talking about professional development, but people's experiences of what they have. One of the questions I ask is, you know, have you ever been, you know, inside of a large commercial building on a two and a half inch hose line and in an aggressive offensive attack? Have you ever advanced hose lines in, in these buildings for various types of buildings? And just ask these questions. And, you know, what we're finding, Chris, or what I'm finding, and this is kind of an independent little study that I've been doing as, as we, we've been preparing and going through some of these these in-depth conversations is that we're finding that our experience level is very, very low. And when they start trying to walk through a risk assessment or a dynamic risk assessment for their communities or for these buildings, or when they're pulling up on fires, trying to use, you know, you know, prime decision recognition to make decisions, they just don't have a strong hard drive to go back into files and pull from. And, Without that and without really understanding or really upfront doing a lot of risk assessment, you know, what are we setting ourselves up for? And that's one of my big concerns that, that I bring in tonight is, uh, are we prepared? Are we setting ourselves up for failure because we've not really assessed the risk that's associated to this from a multitude of facets? So we'll talk more about that as we go. Well, you know, you bring up a great point when you talk about the uh the data points or the benchmarking that uh, both recognition, prime decision-making, and what's more commonly called uh, naturalistic decision-making, they're, they're both the, the common aspect of it. But that all, all of that, that, that concept and the methodologies that are drawn out of recognition, prime decision-making, all have to do with your experiences that you're able to apply in that situation at that particular time. So experiences, the good and the bad, um, become, um, again, programmed into our mindset, which is part of the size up and part of how much of what we do on the fire ground is truly based upon those past experiences. So when we don't have that type of reference point or point of reference, uh, we run into some significant problems. And, and again, when we talk about those aspects as they relate to the frequency, the frequency of runs and operational time in commercial buildings. And we're not talking about just going out to alarm drops and water system activations and investigations, which again, lend themselves to good building intel and information and so forth. They are not, not operationally based. They don't involve tactical engagement. They don't involve critical time elements under command in which we have uh, buildings under distress, which leads me into, again, something that most of our listeners certainly should not be um, uh, unfamiliar with. But when we talk about risk, risk predominantly falls under four particular categories. And we talk about uh, low risk, um, high frequency, low risk, low frequency, high risk, high frequency, and high risk, low frequency. Again, um, there is that frequency and those related levels of risk, and they all have to do with the frequency of what we've experienced in previous types of buildings. So we'll talk about a couple of different characteristics. One of the challenges that are out there facing the American Fire Service continues to be the inability to identify either best practices or identify modes of operation that are appropriate for the building uh, both the, the building in terms of its construction, the occupancy type of that building, which in this instance, we're talking about commercial occupancies of which there are a variety of different subsets based upon what type of occupancy and other associated hazards and risks within that building. 
which include everything from the size of the footprint, the volume of the structure, the uh, siting of that building on that property, and again, the variations that may uh, occur from that, as well as what that occupancy's usage is and the associated levels of risk regarding commodities that are stored and the fire conditions and all of the other aspects that, that roll into what we are going to be doing upon arrival. But again, low risk, both high and low frequencies, and then the high risk, um, which typically don't have a lot of discretionary time. There's going to be some critical factors in the high risk component that are going to be um, very, very critical that come out of uh, and influence uh, operational decision making. And, you know, Chris, and part of what I've asked in, in some of these questions is I said, what are you doing when you go out into the streets? You know, you're doing pre-planning. What are you doing? And a lot of what I'm getting is, I, I guess, vanilla flavored responses of they're going out, they're going to the building, they're, they'll walk through the building. And then they'll mark out where connections are. They'll mark out where panels are, stairwells are. <clears throat> but I don't think they're getting to the depth that we really want them to get to in understanding what a pre-plan is really about and, and really getting down and, and talking about the performance of the building. And of course, we know that buildings are predictable based upon the types of construction, the, the way they're designed, the types of materials that are inside, the loadings. And, and really doing what is a true uh, dynamic risk assessment on this building of how it's going to perform. And then again, with that, there's a humanistic side that goes with it. What level of experience do you have for these people that are going to be performing in here? That, that's a part of a risk that's, that's connected back. And of course, you know, in our, our five-star command, you, you start connecting all these dots, but, you know, Listening to these people, it, it, it almost is a frightening concept that, you know, they're going out and they're, they're kind of going through the motions and they're not really, I guess, connecting the dots to where it is so critical that they understand that building. They read that building. They're reading it before it's even on fire. Uh, they're making, you know, predictive assumptions of what would occur looking at what the building is. And we talked about, you know, the, the construction, the occupancy, you know, what, what's in there, how it's set back, its footprints, you know, fire protection systems, non-fire protected, you know, buildings, all these things that go to that. And of course, the, the other side that if you've got occupancy in there, what type of occupancy is it uh, in the commercial world? And then, to go with occupancy, it's not necessarily just what's in the building, but how many people are in the building that you got to take into consideration and how do you set up for these operations? And of course, big boxes, high rises, you know, multi-stories. I mean, they all, they come in a lot of ways, shapes and sizes that when we say commercial buildings, I think we get hung up. And that, that was one of the first things we, I got back was their commercial buildings are these, you know, Dollar Generals and and some of the bigger box stores, but I don't think they get into the, the true concepts of there are so many types of commercial structures you have to take into consideration. And that, and becomes, that becomes part of the problem, right, Doug? I mean, we've talked about this under, under numerous uh, umbrellas, um, categorizing and having a template that provides some guidance to occupancy type, occupancy risk, building construction features, uh, occupancy load, fire load, and suggested command level risk, as well as tactical level risk. Uh, one of the things that we have constantly done in our programming um, and our presentations, and again, I'm talking about uh, our, our bo both of our related programs. I mean, we talked about some things under the resort firefighting umbrella last year under the series that you put together and we had an opportunity to talk about in terms of typing, uh, identifying and creating this matrix of suggested building types that were in that instance related to functional use as well as location. In other words, a resort facility that was located uh, on Seaside would be 
significantly different in terms of risk if it was if it was located into a, a mountainous area and you had weather-induced conditions such as snow in a uh, in a ski resort. Well, the same thing is true when we talked about and we've introduced to the American Fire Service the conversation dealing with mega mansions and large area residentials. Again, there's a quite a variation from large area residentials to what everyone constantly uh, uses the terminology for, for McMansions, uh, or the mini mansions and the mega mansions as we've defined them all the way up to Tetra mansions. And those again are, are building types and occupancy types that we've defined and categorized based upon square footages and levels of risk that also have corresponding levels of, of operational considerations. Well, again, we're going to roll out tonight based upon our risk conversation here, the suggested typing. So one of the things that for our listeners, uh, uh, Doug and I, again, in our various national deliveries in our, in our programs and seminars, we continue to delve into and, and identify research contributors as well as building construction, architectural standardization of how many of these buildings are constructed and utilized that all of us respond to, whether we are responding them from the East Coast to the Southeast, to the Midwest, uh, to the Southwest, all the way to the, uh, to the uh, West Coast. There are characteristics there that are common, but there are going to be construction-related uh, characteristics that are going to be different, especially if we're coming out of a uh, areas such as the northeast versus the south, uh, the southeast regarding construction features and, and structural loading. So the point I want to make here and introduce to our listeners, just in a very very brief conversation, is that we've identified ten different types of building typing, and these are associated in the first category uh, with square footages. And I'll. Doug, if you can indulge me for a quick minute, I just want to expand upon this because we'll talk more about this in our second uh, installment under our um, episode four. We talk about some of the command decision making, but we've identified 10 different building types within the um, within the commercial fireground. And I'm going to give those out to you. We'll actually post these online um, sometime um, over the next 48 hours, which uh, will include uh, or will culminate with the publication of our program where you're listening to this live, as well as on our secondary program under the Buildings on Fire. So types one through 10, and these are all associated with square footages, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So type one is inclusive up to 10,000 square feet. Type two, from 10,000 to 25,000 square feet. Type three or category three is from 25 to 75,000, type four from 75,000 to 100,000, type five, 100 to 200,000, type six from 200,000 to 500,000, type seven from 500,000 to 1 million square feet, type uh, eight from 1 million to 2 million square feet, type nine from two to 4 million, and type 10, 4 million plus. And there's actually a very specific rationale behind these numbers. They are anecdotal and empirical in, uh, in concept based upon um, code requirements, as well as the types of lessons and learnings and near misses, LODDs and close calls that have come out of after action reports and many other types that associate with a particular building of risk and the types of square footages. There's some commonalities. As you start increasing, as we've gone up in number, uh, you'll see that as we got into the type fives in particular, there's a more sizable gap because we're seeing, uh, although they are far and few between, we are still seeing this increase in square footages of 100,000, 200,000, all the way up to the 1 million plus. They are becoming more common, especially with distribution centers uh, and so forth around the United States. So um, there are specifics there that are associated with the commonality, especially with types one through five, the, the 10,000, 10 to 25, 25 to 75, and 75 to 100,000. So why are we talking about this? Well, when we talk about risk, 
Uh, I'll give you some quick little numbers here that are coming out of our of our full scale seminar. So when we talk about the typical fast food restaurant, uh, the typical fat foods restaurant, if we're and if again if we're familiar with those, whatever the um, you know the the um, uh, facility may be, and we'll use McDonald's as an example. The typical McDonald's building is a common footprint of 4,000 square feet. The typical fast food restaurant that many of us uh, um, go to, the average, again, the, the quantifiable average is around 3,200 square feet. So for a McDonald's that we're familiar with, if we can become more familiar with, again, again, have an appreciation for square footage volume and so forth, the typical McDonald's is around 4,000 square feet. The typical retail commercial building is it averages out to around 10,000 square feet. The average neighborhood shopping center, which especially with the more modern types of structures, that average size is between 30,000 and 125,000 square feet. The average strip mall, whether it be legacy strip malls that are typically associated with the 50s all the way up to the late 1980s, and then again, our era uh, situation again deals with the 50s through 1980s, 1980s to 2000, and then 2000 till current. So those types of both legacy and new types of standalone strip malls, the average is around 100,000 square feet. So let's talk a little bit about the big boxes, the big box stores, Home Depot, 105,000 square feet, Lowe's, 116,000 square feet, the average Costco, 146,000 square feet, and the average department store, 250,000 square feet. So, uh, and then we talk about that type of department store, the common Walmart superstore that, again, is, is pretty common throughout the rural to urbanized areas. The uh, Walmart stores range from 200 to 250,000 square feet on average. So the last thing I'll make mention of is that why all of these other categories, and especially in the upper ranges between 500 to a million, million to two, two to four, and four plus. Based upon the significant changes in distribution, and these are, again, are the types of structures that are very common when we utilize, uh, we talk about online types of servicing, especially with the, uh, Amazon types of uh, distribution and warehousing that all of our listeners somewhere in either the primary or mutual aid response areas, uh, the average distribution and warehouse facility uh, ranges anywhere from 500 to 800,000 square feet. The largest distribution center in the United States, uh, at least based upon our last review of that, is actually located here in my first due area in upstate New York, and that consists of a 3.8 million square foot, five-story distribution center. So we talk about commercial, we talk about, again, a, a very specific type of commercial structure. That footprint is 820,000 square feet distributed over five stories for 3.8 million square feet. So again, our listeners, everything from that standalone three or 4,000 square foot uh, commercial building, our common small box and big box buildings, as well as our uh, neighborhood stores, our strip centers, and as well as all of our big box big buildings that we are commonly associated with, we can start identifying these square footages. So that's a quick little takeaway for our listeners. And again, uh, we'll post a couple of uh, diagrams on our social media and on fireengineering.com to uh, help provide some insights on that particular item. So Doug, I'll ask you a quick question here. Who, who was the father of risk when we talk about a very common term that's been used, utilized in the fire service for, uh, let's see, well over uh, probably about 40 years now, or, or, or give or take, but uh, again, with the passing of this individual. But when we talk about that term, which uh, is near and dear to certainly you, myself, and the American Fire Service, who, uh, who, who gave us that, uh, that, that insight on risk assessment and the rules of engagement back in the mid-'80s? That was uh, Chief Alan Bernasini. Yeah. Oh, and he taught the famous words of risk a lot to save a lot, risk little to save little, which has been utilized uh, multiple times. And, you know, Chris, you're hitting on something. That I, and that this is exactly some of the, the conversation that was going on with folks is I don't think they understand what's in their districts. 
And, you know, you talk about those large, large, large uh, facilities. Um, I think about one that I, I travel past on, on a regular basis going up I-95 uh, in North Carolina, right outside of Dunn, and that's the uh, Rooms to Go uh, distribution warehouse, which is one of the major East Coast distribution warehouses for them. And they also have a very, very, very large uh, dynamic showroom now that is full of furniture that the, that you can go in and purchase from, you know, off of the, the distribution center there. They have all that there. And, I mean, we're talking, again, one of those facilities that is is probably around three to four million square feet uh, because it is just it goes on forever i think about um, a good friend of ours uh, jim smith from up in henrico county who lives out between uh, charlottesville and richmond and goochland county there uh, just right down the street from him is is a major walmart distribution center and we're talking a, a million to two million square footage you know out in the rural district i mean when i'm talking about rural district it's you know, they do have hydrants there, but it's because of that system. But it's, you know, you're a long way to have any backup. And that's part of what, it, you know, I was looking at. I pulled up uh, NFPA 1620 while we were uh, kind of having this conversation and dialogue. And one of the pieces that goes into physical and site considerations is um, the construction, the building management systems and utilities, external site conditions, internal and external security, fences, barriers. And then there's one that jumps out at me is the general overall condition. And we know that these newer facilities that are coming up are, are in really good shape. Um, and, you know, the construction, you know, that, that are being built are, are pretty sound. But what happens when you get one of these older warehouses, which we have uh, through, throughout the entire United States, that is a, a warehouse facility, a commercial building, something that's been around a while. Uh, we, we get into even the type four construction that exists and, you know, in renovated mill construction where they they're using it for something different. What is the true overall condition of that building? And that's something that we have to take into consideration uh, for risk management. And, you know, what type of, I guess commercial building is it? Does it have hazmat in it? You know, and again, what happens when we get vacant or abandoned structures of these type? That's a whole nother dynamic for risk assessment. And again, going back to the conversations I'm having with people, I just I don't think we're taking um, a, a strong enough look at this risk assessment concept that we need to be doing when it comes down to uh, buildings in general, but specifically as we start breaking down into these commercial structures, which add so many more dimensions and so many different layers that we have to look at, especially when it becomes mixed occupancy as well. And we know that that does exist. And, and that that's unique in itself, not to mention if we, we put something in a commercial building that's now considered a mass gathering facility. And I think about that as um, I, w I was watching football over the weekend and nobody thinks about it, but a football stadium is a commercial building. And there's a lot of different types of components in that building as well. And now uh, if you're in Buffalo, you were battling some snow. Yeah. Yeah, no question about that. Well, the occupancy load, both in terms of civilian as well as employees, are distinctive. Um, some buildings are predominant uh, when we talk about certain commercial-type structures that have a, uh, um, a a public interface but also have a significant uh, private interface relative to what the, the building's usages are. And, again, you may have a sizable population load uh, in terms of occupancy of the workers um, and then those that frequent the building on some periodicity at certain times of day and uh, that deals with the public and we see time and time again significant levels of risk relative to uh, occupancy issues and the ability or inability or challenges that the fire service may have in accessing and moving through that structure so you know we talk about mobility, tactical mobility within the building um, under non-fire conditions, as well as those conditions in which we have a developing and growing uh, adverse condition, 
Um, there's going to be smoke, there's going to be heat, and it very, very well may be difficult to even identify the location. So the risk management component comes into play regarding these large area structures, which uh, when we start getting into these other categories, have uh, a much greater level of risk to personnel and to the command uh, management of that incident versus some of the smaller scale structures. I think on the smaller scale category, we talk about those buildings that are up to approximately, let's say, 20 to 30,000 square feet, and that really encroaches upon two to three of our categories. I've often stated that the majority of our significant operational challenges, the close calls, uh, as well as those events that lead to adverse outcomes, typically fall under that 30,000 or 25,000 square foot or less commercial structures. Uh, primarily due to the fact that there may be an inadequate um, level of protection to that structure based upon the operability of the sprinkler systems. There may be challenges regarding the degree of fire engagement and how we attack that fire utilizing hand lines as well as the uh, fire flows that are required for that building. It is a loss of control relative to the square footages of that building. So as an incident starts developing, let's say a fire within the storage area in the back uh, section of a building, uh, we may have an alarm activation that quickly identifies that there's some type of potential condition through uh, incipient smoke. We have a developing fire. Does that sprinkler system control it? Uh, do we have other um, aspects that come into play before that alarm is received and processed by the 911 center? We have turnout times, we arrive on scene, and then we have further either efficiencies or deficiencies in just accessing that building and trying to locate that, all the while the fire dynamics may be uh, creating conditions that are going to be uncontrollable. We hope for fixed suppression systems to control that. That is the whole premise and, and one of the risk modifiers that we find in commercial buildings, but it all goes back to the effectiveness, the operability, uh, and especially when we talk about change in occupancies. Did that sprinkler system get upgraded due to a more hazardous level of risk that uh, may not have been present in the previous occupancy usage of that retail or commercial space? And how does the current change in, the, in construction occupancy type, occupancy risk, the commodities that are being stored as well as sold, how does that change? How, do that, how does that affect the uh, efficiency of that sprinkler system? So um, it goes back to this, and we haven't said it yet, but the most significant levels of risk associated with commercial buildings, especially in that, uh, let's say, 25 to 30,000 square foot range, is that we typically employ residential tactics, residential uh, tactical windows, uh, levels of risk, risk management. We utilize residential-based types of, of fire ground operations for commercial structures that, in those standpoint, have significantly other types of levels of risk. You know, Chris, you're, you're throwing something out, and of course, you, you were talking about uh, things that we know and the near misses uh, earlier here. Uh, one of the challenges you get into, especially in these larger buildings, is the ability to communicate. Uh, radio systems oftentimes do not work very well, especially on repeated systems. Um, there, there are provisions in the code for, for putting in internal repeaters inside the building, which is the responsibility of the building owner or the occupancy. Uh, we, we do find this out in multi-story buildings, especially in the commercial style for for uh, resorts and along the coast is that we sometimes have difficulties there, but especially in the uh, commercial setting for, you know, warehouses and distribution centers, things like that. And one that comes back out in my mind that I was engaged in, and this has been multiple years ago, was in Salisbury, North Carolina, uh, where they had uh, two firefighters that uh, lost their life in the line of duty there. Part of the challenges were some of the communications uh, that were associated to that, but also uh, there were changes to that building that no one knew that uh, occurred. There were modifications to the building that was not done to code, and it was not run through code enforcement. There was no 
actual process to review those to make sure that they were safe. And that's something that you run into in some of your communities. And you need to be aware of this. And this is just about as blunt as I can be. This stuff is going on. People are making modifications to buildings. They're changing things. Uh, they're changing the design of some of these buildings. I, I battled that as a fire chief in the city of Eden, especially in some of these old textile mills that have been, you know, repurposed and was being utilized by other businesses and how they changed and added walls. And, and of course, none of that ever got run through code enforcement. And when we get into the building and we find it and all of a sudden it's it's a whole uh, a different ball game, and we we're getting the building code enforcers, you know, in there, and we're reviewing it. We're finding that uh, there, if you're not in these buildings, and there's not a regular code enforcement process in these buildings, there's a lot that can occur. And you know, from a dynamic risk assessment, not knowing, you know, the unknown is is very very scary. And to, to be trying to command an incident, especially when you start losing communications, um, and, and that's where pre-fire planning comes in. And, and I don't think people take pre-fire planning and knowing your districts and being out in your districts and in these buildings as serious as, as what it should be. I mean, 1620 lays this out very well. And, I mean, it gets down to, you know, what you should be looking at about fire pumps, about you know, uh, fire suppression systems, you know, the sketches, the communications, water supplies, you know, smoke control systems, all these exits, any type of special consideration you get into as far as, um, you know, the, what's in the building. One, one that sticks out to me is um, we have a small, it's not huge, we're, we're probably under a, a about a 3,000 square foot uh, commercial structure that's not, I mean, it's just right outside of the first two district where I live uh, in Horry County, but it is a fertilizer feed type facility. And, and the guy, first thing that they, they said when they went there to do a pre-plan, he's like, don't put any water in here. <laughs> well, that tells you a whole lot about the reactivity that's going to happen with the types of materials that are there. That's, that's something that's there. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, by, by all means. I mean, again, building intel, whether we have indicators with placarding systems, pre-fire planning, uh, information that's made available to us upon arrival. But again, it goes back to having a very clear and concise understanding of your first due. Uh, and we're not talking about the entire jurisdiction response area of a, of a large county or city. You know, ultimately, we just need accountability at the first due basis of company and commanding officers to know their buildings, know their district, know the occupancies and occupancy risks. We, we constantly stress that whole factor. It's not occupancy type, although we are talking about the commercial fire ground. It is the occupancy risks associated with that that revolve around, again, building uh, construction, occupancy usages, and associated levels of risk, the fire dynamics within the building, and the severity, urgency, and growth of the fire conditions that we may have upon our arrival. One of the things that you talked about, Doug, you talked about some of the uh, the challenges, and I've got a couple of things here that I just want to run through our listeners. I just queued that back up here in front of me here. So we talk about commercial buildings, and again, this is just a, a quick um, level of insight with a few bullets. Uh, Doug just talked about communication level issues, the risk factors associated with uh, operational concerns, whether it be storage, commodities that are utilized in storage, or things that are utilized in the uh, commerce of that of that particular uh, 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 commercial building. So some of those challenges are inclusive of, and we again are just going to review a couple of items here as well as add a few new pieces here, but it is the footprint, both in terms of the size, the volume, and the program spaces. Uh, we may go into one type of smaller commercial building, and there may be, again, what you see is what you get. Uh, they are, there are the four perimeter walls, the roof and floor system, and the program space and its function and its use is right there in front of you with very little sort of behind the curtain or behind other uh, uh, types of partitions and so forth. But the types of program spaces, the compartmentation, the large footprint, the large open spaces, and what supports that building function will increase in size based upon the square footages and the typing of those structures. 
Um, it is the identification and the complexity of the construction that goes in the building, which is also driven by era and vintage. It is the risk factors associated with increasing structural spans, the types of bays, and the open or closed conditions of that building. And open and close are inclusive of the type of storefronting that we have, uh, the amount of windows and the square footages, the location, proximity, and the sizing of uh, access doors, whether they be uh, civilian uh, man doors or the types of uh, larger overhead doors uh, or spaces that open from interior to exterior. It is the building's risk associated with susceptibility to collapse and compromise that relates back to how that building was constructed and the air and vintage. So commonly, if we talk about engineered structural systems or we have tilt up wall perimeter or perimeter walls and we have either panelized um, any type of uh, structural steel with open web bar joisting or lightweight engineered structural roofing systems and a variety of decking systems, there's different levels of compromise and collapse that might occur. It is the vulnerability of that building, especially when we talk about the interior components of that building, to heat and fire exposure. Commonly, we have commercial buildings that have a combination of dropped ceilings and concealed spaces and voids. More commonly, which is more uh, of an associated condition that especially over the last 20 years, we more commonly see in newer construction, uh, exposed ceiling systems, or they appear to be masked where they again blend in based upon how they are painted or other types of limited uh, uh, surface systems that create these uh, opened types of exposed ceilings and roofing understructure systems. It's the lack of compartmentation, especially we talk about large open uh, floor plan systems and their connectivity of what's connected between public to the, uh, to the operational side within those commercial buildings. It is the fire dynamics as associated with how fire travels within that structure. It's our tactical mobility and those limitations of how we can move through that building based upon the ensuing conditions. And again, although we're getting ahead of ourselves, all commercial buildings have various types of aisleways and avenues and boulevards. And we use that term because there is a distinction. Think about this, if you go into a Costco or again, everyone's familiar with Walmart. We go into a Walmart store, there are different sizes of aisleways as we go from main uh, transitional access points uh, those conditions that lead us into certain areas, and then the small little avenues or streets that come off of them. We've got to start considering orientation and how those things increase in width or size or decrease and how they affect our mobility and our orientation into that particular structure. And again, as Doug was talking about, it's the fire load, it's the threat risk to the building, it's time factors, the whole issue with Delta time regarding tactical mobility, as well as other aspects. And again, it goes back to occupancy load, the fire load, and also the building structural load. We, we have this false sense of survivability due to what, Doug, uh, you mentioned earlier on in the beginning of the program regarding this frequency, the uh, urgency, uh, severity. What have we f are familiar with from our recognition prime decision making? And I think all in all, we have this false sense of severity and a false sense of risk because again, we are employing commonly residential tactics into a building that does require, does demand an entirely different type of tactical template uh, based upon its square footages, the volumes, its usage, and more importantly, the construction features in that building. Well, Chris, you know, we, we could talk for, for probably weeks on, on dynamic risk assessment and risk management and things that go with that. The, the biggest thing that I want to hammer home is, is we kind of start wrapping up here is that um, risk analysis, w when you're really looking at your community, how much is being done? Let, let's just be real with ourselves. Let's just cut to the chase. How much is really being done to do a risk assessment, doing a risk analysis? And a lot of times this doesn't happen because it's very long, it's very arduous, uh, and it never stops. 
because your your communities are ever evolving. They're very dynamic. But if you look at like the accreditation process through the Center for Public Safety Excellence, this is a major step uh, of doing a, a, a true risk analysis of your community. And, you know, one of the things that I think about when I look at this is um, you're not going to be prepared, unfortunately, for every single thing that's going to pop up in your district uh, as soon as you see it. That's where you have to have this continuous process that you're evolving as an organization and changing as an organization and adapting and you know, working on your, your tactical deployments, on your training, on your education, on your knowledge, uh, on really looking at what the risks are, how you're interacting with code enforcements, uh, how, how things are being, you know, planned, how you work with planning. There is just so much more that goes into this than, hey, we're going to go out and do a pre-plan and, and we'll be ready for what's going on. Uh, I think we're only scratching the surface. Unfortunately, uh, we would have to spend uh, a lot more time on that. But, you know, that's kind of my wrap up here is I want folks to realize that I don't think that people are as ready as they think they're ready. And then they try to deploy uh, limited manpower tactics, you know, to a commercial building that they are limited manpower tactics on residential structures. And they think they're going to be successful. And basically, in a sense, and I use the analogy, we're taking a knife to a gunfight. Um, there, there's so much more complexities in, in commercial buildings than what people are really looking at. And even though we talk about pre-fire planning and how important that is, how we look at you know risk assessments and how important that is, I think we have got to look at a comprehensive uh, philosophy, kind of like what Gordon Graham does. Um, you know, we're responding to these things. Are we really prepared? Do do we know what we're getting into? You know, what are we going to pull from? Um, and, and at some point in time, we we have to make the analogies that. Uh, we're just not capable of doing maybe an offensive attack in some of these buildings when you're turning out three or four people as a rural company, like may happen initially in, in some of these rural communities to these larger buildings. And I think when people really got down and, and measured the size of the buildings and truly looked at the size of the buildings and the square footage, uh, as you were describing in, in our, our 10 categories, I think they would find that they have bigger buildings than they really think they have. I think they're just commonplace and they have got this level of comfort, which is very, very concerning to me. Well, it, it does go back to that point of reference, Doug. And again, we, and that's why I made a point of utilizing the example of a, a type of occupancy that is common to all of us. Uh, I think there is, there's probably no one out there that has not stepped foot into a fast food establishment such as a McDonald's. Um, and again, I use that reference of what is the associated square footage. So when we can start relating square footages, meaning the footprint, the volumes of spaces, the, the types of conditions that one may find and start associating them with categories and examples, that's what leads, leads us to the point of being able to uh, recognize conditions, um, associated with the building that have different levels of risk or attributes that are positive. So, so not always the negative portion, but we have that level of risk that either has a low or high degree of, of risk. And then we also look at the other factors that uh, uh, relate back to probability. And the probability is also related to the fire conditions in the building the manner in which the building will perform, which goes back to our whole model and concept on the predictability performance of that structure, the tactical windows, looking at the delta time. And then as you so well put a moment ago, it's the ability for the department to engage in operations. So we'll talk more about some of these factors in our next episode where we talk about fire ground command uh, decision-making and we continue this, this thread on risk because we're going to pick up on where we just left off. We're going to talk about probabilities. So when Brunacini talked about risk a lot, save a lot, risk a little to save little, and risk nothing for what is already lost, 
Brunacini also in his matrix in the mid 1980s talked about low, medium and high risk and also talked about probability. And we will talk more about probability and risk as it relates to the dynamic fire ground, especially at the command level as it relates to whether we engage or not engage, whether we need to call for more resources and how all of those play out in this continuing evolving and very dynamic aspect of fireground risk, which relates back to size up, which also relates back to what? The development of our incident action plan, deployment and engagement. So this is such a critical aspect of it, but yet uh, we, the fire service, spend so little time really delving into the details and the mechanisms of what the commercial fire ground demands in terms of effective and appropriate risk management that contributes toward decision-making and how that plays out at the command and tactical levels of engagement. So we'll cover more of that in our next uh, episode in our series. Well, Chris, another great uh, conversation and dialogue about uh, commercial buildings and specifically about risk management. Uh, I'm looking forward to where we uh, come together again on part four and begin talking uh, a little more in depth about some of our, uh, you know, commercial decision making and, and, you know, strategies and tactics and things like that. So for our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another edition of Fire and Training. I'm your host, Douglas Klein, with uh, my esteemed colleague and guest and friend, Christopher Nam. Join us on Taking It to the Streets for part four of this six-part series as we really look at commercial buildings and dive deep into the heart of conversations that you won't want to miss. Till next time, stay safe, train hard, and we'll see you at the next episode as we dive in deeper into this topic. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit TenkataFabrics.com slash Flex 7. Flex 7, powered by enforced technology. Only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics.